Do you have what it takes to defeat the Scars and escape Nepali? Well, let's find out with Unreal, this week on the Upper Memory Block Podcast. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity, or do you die here? Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 113 of the Upper Memory Block podcast. I'm your host, Joe, and I'm here with you once again, as always, to talk about a game from the DOS and this week, just barely pre-Windows XP gaming era. So yeah, 113, uh, ever so slightly uh, late. We're actually just the first day into October. Uh, I usually try and, uh, and release my shows before the end of the month, but uh, yesterday was uh, actually a little celebration of uh, of, uh, of the UM baby's second birthday, so uh, I got a little bit delayed, so we're up one day late. Her birthday's actually on Thursday, October 4th is her uh, her actual birthday, but you know, weekend before, and we'll be traveling because this coming weekend is, is Thanksgiving up here in Canada. We have it about a month before our, our friends to the south in America have their big thanksgiving and it's not as big a deal here it's just sort of a long weekend and you know we have uh we still do the turkey thing and all that but there's no like crazy black friday deals and you know all that uh all that insanity and there's no football games and and anything like that so yeah we're we're gonna go visit my folks in montreal so we're actually gonna be driving on uh, on you and baby's birthday so uh yeah that was uh that was sort of sort of fun finally started cooling down a bit outside so uh fall is is arriving with uh I'm happy for that because it's been freaking hot for for quite a while. So, uh, yeah, we've got uh, a big show, big, big show uh, this time around, big topic. And uh, and we've got quite a few emails, uh, both both uh, that we're going to go through right at the beginning here about miscellaneous things and some stuff that, uh, unfortunately, I forgot to add into the, the previous show on Heart of China and, uh, and a few at the end talking about uh, this episode's topic. So let's roll right into it with an email from Matt. And Matt writes, Hey Joe, thank you for the great podcast. It's one of my must listens now, and I'm catching up with the back catalog as well. I was thrilled recently to see that you were going to review one of my favorite games of all time, Heart of China, and I just gave the episode a listen. I'm just a couple of years older than you are, and throughout my gaming history, I was always a couple of generations behind on consoles, and I ran some pretty slow PCs back in the day. I was exposed to console gaming first, and even though my dad worked at IBM, he was too cheap to buy me any kind of system or any kind of computer, so I had to experience all gaming through friends. Around 1987 or so, I bought a used Atari 2600 system and some games from my uncle for about $50 uh, with my own money. $50 was a huge amount of money for an 8-year-old in the mid-80s, and uh, the system somewhat gave me my electronic gaming fix, but was somewhat unimpressive since all my friends whose parents actually liked them had purchased the shiny new NES systems. However, there was something else that interested me more than the NES. Mike, a friend of the family, was a self-proclaimed computer nerd and at the time had a 286-8 
or thereabouts AT with Turbo, an Orchid VGA graphics card, a 20 megabyte MFM hard drive that made wonderful sounds when it spun up, and an absolutely beautiful 14-inch flat-screen Zenith VGA monitor that actually had a cooling fan inside. Every time we would visit Mike, uh, he'd show me his latest software and hardware, and this was how I was exposed to Windows 3.0, the original Microsoft mouse, MS Paint, P-Brush, MS Flight Simulator, and a few other games. Uh, One day, we drove up to visit, and he had just installed a new Sound Blaster 1.0. He had it hooked up to some Radio Shack Minmus 7 speakers, uh, which are actually some pretty fantastic bookshelf speakers even today. We left our asses off playing with the Talking Parrot, Dr. Spazzo, and Creative's voice recording software. Then he showed me the new game he got. It was Heart of China. I had never seen anything like it before. The VGA backgrounds, the digitized actors, and above all, the absolutely amazing music. I was enthralled by the game. He had not yet finished it and loaded up some of his save games to show me the different locations. And he explained how you have to be nice to Nurse Kate to make her like you and get the best ending. Uh, Heart of China was what got me obsessed over PCs and PC games, especially point-and-click adventures. A side note, He also showed me LHX Attack uh, Chopper, which is another favorite of mine to this day. So much so that uh, during my tenure, tenure, see what I did there, at Electronic Arts Redwood Shores, I realized that its programmer, Brent Iverson, was still working there, and I probably weirded him out by going fanboy on him and making him sign my original floppy disks. Maybe someday you'll review LHX or check Chuck Yeager's Air Combat on the show. Back to Heart of China. Uh, a couple of years later, we went to visit Mike, and he had bought a sweet new Gateway 2486SX33 system, and he showed me all the latest and greatest games for it. He had also sold his old 286 system to us, and in a rare display of generosity, my dad paid him something like $150 for it so I could have a computer. I set it up immediately on the floor of my room as soon as I got home, and disappeared for probably what seemed like a couple of weeks to my parents. I configured and reconfigured the tiny 20 megabyte hard drive constantly and played any game I could get my hands on. The Wolf 3D demo, stunts, LHX, but mostly Heart of China. Uh, I, I played through it over and over and have probably seen every ending, every piece of dialogue, every game over screen. I wanted to be like Lucky. I wanted a friend like Chi and thought that Kate Lomax was pretty hot. I was absolutely thrilled to notice that there were subtle extra animations in the game after installing an ISA card with one megabyte of extended, or was it expanded, I still don't know the difference, uh, RAM. The music was probably my favorite part of the game. Even with Monural Sound Blaster 1.0, to this day, I'll often think about or listen to an MP3 of the opening theme, the Hong Kong rickshaw music, and especially the Orient Express theme. On a recent ride on a turn-of-the-century locomotive here in California, I could practically think of nothing but the Orient Express sequence from the game. Heart of China was my first adventure game, and it's one of my all-time favorites that I revisit from time to time. Thank you for highlighting it and bringing back some great memories. I look forward to the Unreal episode. That game has great memories for me also. I had just installed a new Voodoo 2 card, and stepping out into the open from the crashed Vortex Rikers in the beginning of the game, well... I think my jaw may have suffered some permanent damage from dropping to the floor. Can't wait to hear what you have to say about it. Keep up the good work, Matt. Well, thank you, Matt. That is a a really, really amazing uh, email. Really, really amazing story. Uh, Super cool that uh, 
you know, you spent some time working at, uh, at EA and, uh, you know, you met, <laughs> you met one of your idols, one of your, your gaming heroes, if you will. And, uh, you know, maybe he was weirded out, but I think he probably liked it. And, uh, yeah. So really, really, really cool. Love, love, love these, these, you know, personal stories like this. Okay. Next up a quick email from my good buddy, uh, and local, uh, retro gaming compatriot, Brian demodulated uh, and brian writes hi joe and blockers i took a break from podcasts for a few months to listen to audiobooks but halfway through the great gatsby i couldn't help but think f scott fitzgerald is no joe mastriani two things i wanted to say first thanks to you and space game junkie brian for your fun show about wing commander one of my all-time favorite series i spent a week recovering from eye surgery so i was very grateful to hear such a pleasant conversation while my whole world was blurry and i had so little else to do Second, I just finished the One Must Fall 2097 episode and was happy it got such a deluge of listener mail. There's just one detail I was surprised nobody mentioned, the debris. As a teenager in a post-Mortal Kombat world, I never thought I'd be satisfied with fighting carnage in a game with no blood. But One Must Fall had an awesome alternative. Every time you land a blow, a shower of bolts and screws pours out of your opponent. I believe there was even a slider that let you adjust the density of metal confetti. This effect brought my machine to its knees at the time, but I didn't dare turn down the detail because it was such a satisfying effect. All the best, Brian. P.S. Uh, the PC actually did have several more fighting games. My favorites were Sango Fighter, based on the Romance of the Three Kingdoms universe, and FX Fighter, which was a 3D fighter similar to Virtual Fighter or Battle Arena Toshinden. Uh, or ever try Battle Beast by 7th level? You could be a llama named Dalai Lama. Get it? <laughs> Well, thanks for that, Brian. And uh, yeah, you know, it, it is interesting. I know, obviously, when we start rolling through, you know, more more details, I, I sort of tend to cover, uh, I guess, what you want to call more of the triple A type uh, titles of, of the of the time on this show. And I know, you know, fighting games was sort of definitely outside of One Must Fall and and a couple of other things, uh, you know, fighting games were sort of more of, of a niche. I think that didn't necessarily see. I feel like I've heard of Sango Fighter. Uh, I don't know anything about the Romance of the Three Kingdoms universe, though. And uh, and I'm pretty sure I've heard of FX Fighter. But uh, yeah, I mean, maybe I will. Uh, I will have to uh, cover a couple of more, couple more fighting games. Try and pick out some of the big guys. The problem with with me covering. Not to say that these are smaller games, because frankly, I know nothing about them. They might have been very popular games at the time. But, um, you know, the problem with covering sort of smaller, more niche games, unless you really can find some good sources, is there's not a lot of uh, archival type stuff about them, a lot of story about, you know, the back end and, and the development and the stuff that you guys really, really enjoy. So that that's sort of why I don't really touch a lot on, on sort of some of these uh, less mainstream genres and that may change god knows you know eventually i may run out of things to talk about but uh yeah thanks for that and uh and yeah you know you're right that whole uh, <laughs> the whole debris coming off of the uh coming off of the the the, the bots whatever they were called the heart heart i don't remember anyways the robots <laughs> in uh in one was fall was actually pretty pretty damn satisfying and and i guess uh satiated my need for blood as well in uh <laughs> in my youth all right, so next up, like I said, we've got a lot of emails this time around. Uh, we have a message from person whose name I didn't write down because I am a bad human. I'm going to go and 
load up my email. And this one is, in fact, from Lewis. And Lewis writes, Hi, Joe. Greetings from New Zealand. I'm not going to do an accent. Sorry. <laughs> Love your podcast. So good to put it on and escape to my late 80s early 90s happy bubble uh got to got put onto your podcast from a friend who loves retro pc games as much as me uh first game ever was police quest 2 which i had to play on my dad's work laptop which had a two color lcd display but for some reason uh it was like watching everything in negative however i pushed on and played through to the end where you shoot jesse baines in the sewer control room under steelton i also grew up on x-wing uh disc version and he links a, a video of uh of it being played, I think, believe possibly by him. Uh, Star Trek Judgment Rights disc version, the rest of the police quests, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, uh, convinced my dad to buy Rebel Assault in late 93, but at that point we didn't have a sound card, so I realized it was pointless and returned it. Later in the 90s, I would buy it again and loved it. I would also get the LucasArts Archives Volume 1 and adored Fate of Atlantis and totally gushed over the small video teaser for Rebel, Rebel Assault 2 that was on it. Hootkins, are you shooting, showing anything unusual? Sorry, the line used to crack me and my friend up with uh, its obvious reference to William Hootkins from uh, from A New Hope. Uh, and the CD-ROM collector's editions of X-Wing and TIE Fighter uh, was hugely let down by... Uh, or, sorry, and the CD-ROM collections of X-Wing and TIE Fighter and was hugely let down by X-Wing versus TIE Fighter with its lack of story in single player like the previous two games. Even... Uh, with the expansion balance of power, it still felt pretty disconnected. Uh, the dig was really hard to get, though, uh, get through and being a total noob and not knowing the internet in the mid-90s, uh, I remember seeing an HTTP address in the manual, so seeing the forward slashes and semicolons likened it to DOS commands and tried typing it into DOS, and that was an epic fail 90s version of me. Uh, so I rang the hit line, hint line a few times for that crazy color shape puzzle in the first circular underground room in the middle of the island complex. Anyway, I digress, though. Aside from heaping kudos on you for the epic podcast, if you haven't already stumbled across it like I did, you should check out uh, the user Laser Short on SoundCloud. Uh, he's done a pretty high-quality version of the X-Wing and TIE Fighter soundtracks, which is pretty epic, and, and he links to them, and he says, if you haven't heard these before, I hope you like them. Cheers, Lewis. And uh, yeah, I'm going to link these in the show notes, either soundcloud.com slash laser short slash such slash X-Wing and soundcloud.com slash laser short. That's S-C-H-W-E-R-T slash sets slash tie. These things are freaking amazing. I think they, they came out about three years ago, but I hadn't heard them. And I've been listening to them basically nonstop. He's basically taken the MIDI, you know, the the in-game, you know, the in-flight music and the interstitial music and the, you know, the the concourse music and all, all basically all the main themes from X-Wing and TIE Fighter. And he's sort of upgraded them with with modern uh, audio tools and modern samples and and really, really made them sound great. I'm, I'm very, very impressed with them. So this is me talking, by the way. <laughs> and um, yeah, really, really great. So th thanks for that, Lewis. Thanks for linking those and, and thanks for the memories. So wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. All right, so that's it for the emails. We've got two voicemails. We're already 15 minutes into the show. And uh, this, uh, we've got one voicemail from Greg. And uh, Greg actually sent this in uh, for the last episode for Heart of China. He was actually the first person to send me uh, 
something for Heart of China, and he sent it so early on that uh, I lost track of it, and I did not play it uh, last time around. So take it away, my good buddy Greg from uh, the Super Nintendo podcast. I think that's what it's called. I, my brain is tired. <laughs> yeah, I've <laughs> I've been on it too. Good, listen to Greg's show; it's really good. Um, yeah, the SNES podcast. That's it. And uh, yeah, so take it away, Greg, on Heart of China. Hello, Joe and fellow UMB podcast listeners. This is Greg, a.k.a. Soblazer. Uh, wanted to give some feedback on this game you're covering this episode, Joe, because I don't know how many people are going to submit feedback on this one. I think this is a pretty obscure adventure game. I really don't remember hearing any press about this when it came out, certainly, or any, or really see it talked about all that much. Uh, the graphic adventure game, uh, Heart of China. So, I played this game shortly after it first came out when I was a kid. Um... Uh, back in those days, I'm sure you probably remember Joe, uh, Joe, the circumstances, as I'm sure many other listeners of the podcast probably do. Um, it was great going to uh, the video game stores like Babbage's, Electronic Boutique, Software, etc., um, you know, and so on, uh, because so because they often had uh, bargain bins. Just like uh, sh- or, uh, uh, literal bins, or sometimes like like sh- like shelves that, like shelves in the rack or whatnot, just like where uh, ch- uh, cheaper computer games uh, like were located. Uh, sometimes they were bad games. Sometimes you know, sometimes they just didn't perform as well as expected, uh, just because they were a victim of bad mar- uh, bad timing or, or market or whatever. And sometimes just, sometimes there's a great game that just simply got. Uh, re-released again for a cheaper price. Uh, no matter what the circumstances were, there were many, many games I picked up this way. Uh, mostly PC games, some video games too, uh, but mostly like PC games particularly seemed to be prone to this market during the 80s and 90s. Um, nowadays, of course, that's not really a thing. You just go to Steam for your uh, gaming needs, which is which is very good. The games are certainly cheaper on Steam on average, I think, than what they were in the store back then, and you and you get the games immediately. Uh, but there's but there's a certain nostalgia about like you know going to the stores, not knowing really what's out there, or seeing like seeing where or seeing where um or, or really being aware of what there is, and just seeing what you can what you can find, or what you can locate to play like in your budget. Hard China was one of those games that picked up this way. I don't remember which store it was. It was probably about a year or so after the game came out. Um. I like adventure games. I'm not a huge adventure game fan, mostly because I just get frustrated at the puzzles, uh, puzzles and whatnot. So I'm not, uh, so it, so it's like I'm not a very good player. It doesn't take, it doesn't take, it doesn't take to take very long for me to be forced to have to go to a walkthrough or some help or whatnot. But I do enjoy the games. Uh, I was a, certainly a big fan of both uh, Sierra and LucasArts games growing up. More so Sierra, uh, most just because I happen to just play like more Sierra games uh, for whatever reason. But yeah, so this game is impressive in a few ways. Uh, first of all, the, the presentation. Uh, the fact is using like these uh, very sharp pictures, uh, like for the. Uh, like for the actual gameplay, uh, the t- it's like the text appearing in boxes as, as you go through the game. Uh, very nice, like very advanced, like for its time period. Um, not quite FMV, of course, but kind of the next best thing up to FMV, I, th- I think, is what they were going for here. Uh, so, like, it's very impressive, like all around. The setting's pretty unique. Uh, I can't think of I, I, I can't think of too many other games that take place that take place in China during this time period. Um, to be honest, I really didn't remember this game all that well when you said you were, uh, when you mentioned it was coming up. I, I remember playing it. I played it through once uh, shortly after I bought it, um, and just never went back to it again. Partly because adventure games don't have a lot of replay value to begin with, but also partly, but, 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 but also partly because for other reasons I'll talk about here in a moment, I had to go watch a, a video uh, on the game on YouTube to refresh my memory uh, memory on, uh, on a little bit. 
Um, controls are very easy. Uh, music's also pretty good, like very fitting like for the game. Um, there are some interesting twists, uh, twists and turns of the story. Uh, like it's a decent story. Um, the main knocks I have about this game, and the reason I really wouldn't place it higher in adventure game uh, category, and the and the, uh, and the reason I really don't have much reason to play it again compared to some other adventure games which I played over and over again, like the King's Quest and Leisure Suit Larry's or whatnot, is because um, the story, while it has some good twists and turns, is kind of limited. Uh, the characterization I really didn't like all that much. Uh, it was kind of expected what was going to happen. Also, also it was pretty short. Uh, and somewhat easy. I didn't have to go to a walkthrough for this game, uh, so I was able to go through the game in about a couple hours. So there's even less replay value in this game. There's another. There's like another adventure games, I think. Um, so it's not particularly entertaining. Uh, it's fine for a short romp. It, it, if you're an adventure game fan and never played this game, as I'm sure many of you out there probably haven't, because like I said I think this game is like pretty obscure, uh, definitely check it out. Um, it's uh, um, it's not bad for going through it once, I think, if you're an adventure game fan. Uh, and at the very least, the graphics and the presentation style that the game uses is definitely worth checking out. Um, but as far as being anywhere on a top 10 list, no, nah, definitely not. Maybe not even a top 100. Um, there's just not really anything new or original in this game besides the graphical style. So, anyway, it's an okay adventure game. Not really a classic, I think. Uh, doesn't, you know, doesn't really, um, I'm going to hedge my bets a little bit in saying if the game holds up today. I think, like I said, like the flip bugs before, if you've not played this game before and you're adventure game fans, worth checking out once. Um, but there's no, but, but, but you're not going to have the desire to, to go back and play it again afterwards, I think. There's just no replay value to this game uh, as it is. So, anyway, thank you for all the hard work and everything you're doing for the podcast, Joe, and always look for the next episode. Uh, thank you, everybody, and catch you guys later. Well, thanks so much, Greg. Uh, you know, uh, Good thoughts. I mean, I don't know if I necessarily agree that it's a, a playthrough once game. There are there are a couple of options, and you know they did sort of tout the whole like plot branching thing that did let you go through it a couple of different ways and get you know a, a variety of of endings. I will definitely agree with you that uh, that it's a short game and that the characters are you know it, it's sort of a an expected outcome given that it's you know inspired by things like Indiana Jones and her romancing the stone and and whatever else so um yeah again thanks for the comments apologies for not playing them in the last show but uh that's the way things roll so i did have one more voicemail on uh, on the schedule it's a second voicemail that uh raytheon sent in of uh of his three but you know given that we're already over 20 minutes into the show and uh, we haven't gotten to the main topic yet i'm i'm gonna uh bounce that over to the the next show sorry about that raytheon but we will uh we will definitely still hear your thoughts and uh we're just going to get right into it because uh yeah i want to talk about uh i want to talk about some unreal let's get to it you're listening to the upper memory block podcast time for okay so here we go with a big guy uh this time around we are covering the Unreal series. Now, Unreal is a series of of six games, or or at least six PC games. I think it might be eight, uh, at least eight games total. But we only really care about PC games in here. And uh, these games have been primarily developed by Epic Games, or as they were known uh, way back when we cared about them, Epic Mega Games. Uh, the first game in the series, simply titled Unreal, released in nineteen ninety eight. 
So let's chat genre. Um, we haven't talked about one of these in a while, but Unreal is, of course, uh, the progenitor of the Unreal Engine, which is definitely well known as the basis for uh, many a first-person shooter. So a first-person shooter, or FPS, is a game that usually focuses its its main gameplay loop around ranged weapon combat. Uh, as a player, you view the world through your character's eyes. That is, you know, from the first-person view. Uh, so. You see the world from the first person, you have a gun, uh, you smash those things together, and boom, first-person shooter. Uh, traditional first-person shooters tend to be somewhat story-light. Uh, games are usually split into distinct levels, with the main goal of each level being to get from the beginning to the end without dying. Uh, some FPSs introduce the concept of mission objectives and uh, and things like that, but you know, really, deep at their core, every FPS has the goal of staying alive, killing enemies, and getting to the exit at the end of the level. Uh, levels tend to be strewn with enemies of different types, collectible weapons, power-ups, and uh, the dreaded set of doors unlocked by key cards and some other kind of very mild uh, puzzle-solving elements like that. Uh, weapons can take many forms, uh, from the mundane and realistic, like pistols and shotguns, to the extreme fantasy, like uh, <laughs> you know wands and stuff, or uh, or sci-fi. However, uh, you know most shooters have sort of a common set of of archetypal weapons, uh, usually a melee weapon, tacked as a fallback, a weak but accurate sort of pistol type thing, a uh, trusty workhorse of a shotgun for a powerful short-range punch, quick-firing automatic weapon, and uh, more of an explosive rocket launcher. Uh, you know, these things are, are sort of abstracted. Like I said, if it's more of a fantasy game, you might have like magical exploding ball shooter and, you know, a bow and arrow and a Gatling bow and arrow or something like that. And, you know, in sci-fi, you just get the sort of generic sci-fi tropes of uh, the future versions of current weapons. But, you know, the general types uh, are are what you usually see in a first-person shooter. Uh, graphically, while there are 2D first-person shooters, uh, the bulk of the most famous ones employ either a 2.5D, so things like Doom and, and stuff like that are, you know, they look 3D, but they're really not, or a full 3D rendered game engine. So, you know, understanding all of this stuff, uh, let's talk a little bit more specifics about story. Okay, so it's the future. And at least for you, the future is pretty bleak. You're a prisoner. Uh, prisoner 849, to be precise. What did you do wrong? Well, it's probably pretty bad, but honestly, we don't rightly know. Um, what we do know is that you are a passenger aboard the Vortex Rikers, a high-security prison transport vessel. It's taking you somewhere, most likely a more permanent uh, incarceration, but that's not really important right now. Uh, the game's manual describes what happens next. Uh, being a prisoner on a prison ship... You aren't exactly privy to uh, what's going on, what the status of the ship is, but um, in your estimation, based on uh, what's going on around you, whatever is up right now isn't very good. Things are shaking and throwing you around as if you're on a roller coaster. Uh, you yell out to a passing guard who reveals that uh, the ship is going down. Uh, after coming to, the cell block you reside in is clearly trashed and... Lo and behold, the plasma gate that was locking you inside your cell is no longer operational. Uh, you make your way across the threshold, uh, hearing the computer say that prisoner 849 is escaping. Luckily, 
no one seems to be around or alive to act on that warning. So now, the game begins. So, we're a prisoner aboard the now-crashed prison transport vessel Vortex Rikers. Well, with that, let's talk gameplay. Uh, in some ways, the beginning of the first level or the prologue or whatever you want to call it in Unreal is is fairly unique, I would say. Uh, you know, escaping from prison isn't all that new. Wolfenstein 3D did that. Uh, there's a couple of other games for sure. Strife, I'm pretty sure, did that. Uh Duke Nukem didn't quite do that, but sort of the same thing. Your ship crashes, blah, 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 blah. But, uh, you know, in all those games, especially Wolfenstein 3D, you get a gun pretty much like within the first three seconds of the game. In Unreal, you're a prisoner escaping into an empty cell block. And you don't just find a gun right away. You you wander around helpless and uh, you don't even have fists to fight with. You've basically got nothing. For now, your goal is simply to escape from this god-awful ship. Uh, to accomplish this task, you do pretty much what you'd expect in a first-person shooter when you don't have a gun. You you sort of cautiously make your way around, hoping to God there's no bad guys around. Uh, in your sneaking, you soon come across a, a device, which is a universal translator. And this translator allows you to, among other things, read the logs of the now-deceased officers and crew of the Vortex Rikers. Uh, it seems like some kind of maintenance issue uh, seems to have taken the ship down. So you make your way through the ship with uh, relatively common first-person shooter controls. I say relatively common because they're not exactly what we would expect. Um, you know, you can use the keyboard only, which is what a lot of folks were still doing around 1998. Uh, that said, the game's manual did make a point to stress that using a combination of the keyboard and the mouse really was the the, the recommended way to go. Uh, the mouse in mouse look mode made the game a whole lot quicker. Uh, aim could be taken faster, strafing was easier, and, and generally it was recommended that uh, the mouse and keyboard was the way to play the game. Now, uh, the industry hadn't quite settled on the well-known and currently accepted WASD uh, movement setup as of yet, so... Movement was accomplished by the arrow keys uh, with up and down being forward and back and uh, left and right being for strafing. Uh, moving the mouth, mouse, <laughs> mouth, mouse, side to side, turned you and uh, and moving the mouse forward and back would tilt your view up and down much like uh, you would expect. Uh, moving the mouse also helped aim an on-screen reticle, which allowed for some additional sharpshooting once you got your hands on a weapon. Now, you know, mouse look was, was nothing new. Uh, other games did talk about it, but it really did seem like it was very, very stressed as the as as the the way of the future, the way to really play Unreal. So, with all that stuff in mind, you choose your preferred uh, control method. If you're stubborn, you keep with the keyboard or you use mouse look. Um, and with that, you you creep your way through the Vortex Rikers. Uh, the first thing you come across is is this Universal Translator. So, picking it up you realize you do now have the ability to hear audio logs that you may come across in the ship. Uh, you find the bridge, the armory, where you surprisingly don't get a gun, and uh, eventually you come across uh, a bit of a scene. You start to walk into an area, you hear some screaming, some roaring, and you see a guard get thrown against the wall by something, and that something doesn't sound very friendly. And as you make your way forward... 
that thing seems to have gone away and you do find something of great value, a gun. Now, it's not the greatest gun in the world, but it's something. Uh, this first weapon is your old standby, the dispersion pistol. Uh, the dispersion pistol fires a relatively weak and relatively slow-moving energy burst. However, unlike every other weapon in the game, uh, the dispersion pistol's energy store rebuilds over time. While you can't continuously fire it forever, it will run out of juice, uh, it does effectively provide unlimited ammo because when you stop shooting, it will slowly recharge. Now, every weapon in Unreal, this one included, also has an alternate fire mode. Uh, the secondary mode for the dispersion pistol fires off a charged burst. Uh, it's still slow. Burst. Huh? Burst. Charged a burst. It's still slow, but uh, but it's more powerful, doing more direct damage and a little bit of splash damage too. Um, not only is the dispersion pistol your most reliable standby, it's also even upgradable by finding items uh, throughout your adventure. Now, finally, uh, the dispersion pistol is part of one of two weapon types in Unreal, and these two weapon types uh, have sort of become a standard descriptor of, of weapon types in first-person shooters in general, and these types are hit scan and projectile. So let's start with the thing that we can probably, you know, figure out for ourselves. A projectile weapon, uh, of which the dispersion pistol is one, fires a slow-moving projectile that can, in fact, be dodged by an enemy. Other projectile weapons include the Stinger, uh, which fires a stream of crystal projectiles in primary, or a shotgun-like blast of five crystals in uh, secondary fire. The 8-Ball, which shoots rockets that explode on impact or grenades that bounce and explode on a timer. Uh, the Flat Cannon shoots a spread of shrapnel or a grenade. The Razor Jack, which shoots uh, dumb, steerable, or dumb or steerable blades. And the GES Bio Rifle, uh, which shoots sticky blobs that explode after a delay and finally a grenade and rocket launcher round out uh, the projectile weapons now on the other side of the world are hit scan weapons hit scan means uh shots from the weapon immediately make their way to the target upon firing there is no way to dodge a shot from a hit scan weapon as soon as it's fired its fate is decided if the shot was true it hits otherwise it misses uh hit scan weapons consist of the auto mag which is basically your run-of-the-mill pistol on primary fire, it shoots as you'd expect a pistol to fire. In secondary, uh, you fire it sort of uh, gangsta style, <laughs> holding it sort of sideways, at a, and that will allow you to shoot at a faster rate but with less accuracy. Uh, next is the rifle, which uh, is pretty much a, a standard rifle. Primary shoots like a rifle. Secondary lets you zoom in a little bit on the scope for more of a sniper type of a view of uh, a minigun shoots at a high rate of fire with the primary and uh, a secondary uh, fire shoots it even faster, which uh, which is good to take down enemies real quick, but it does burn down your ammo. Uh, now, since all these weapons I just sort of rattled off aren't, aren't enough, uh, there are also weapons that fire both projectile and hit scan, depending on what firing mode you're in. Uh, the ASAMSD fires a quick hit scan energy projectile in primary, or a more powerful uh, energy, sorry, a, a hit scan energy burst or whatever. Energy projectile is confusing. It, hit, it fires hit scan primary and it fires a powerful projectile in secondary. And and there's a bit of a trick to, to the AMSD. Now to use this weapon effectively, 
you do what's called an AMSD combo. Uh, you fire a slow-moving secondary fire burst, and uh, you know that burst by itself is not really that powerful. Uh, however, as it travels towards its target, you shoot that one with your primary fire that's hit scan, and that causes the uh, the projectile to explode, causing a good amount of damage. So you sort of gotta give it a bit of a a kick <laughs> to really make it uh, do the work. Uh, finally, the combat assault rifle um, is something that's available in uh, the game's expansion. It's sort of an upgrade of the minigun with more ammo capacity and an alternate fire that shoots a, a relatively useless explosive shot. So with varying combinations of these weapons, you make your way through the game's 38 levels, and I think that's not including the expansion. Uh, eventually, you find out a bit more about this strange world that uh, you find yourself on. Uh, turns out, uh, after you escape the Vortex Rikers out into the world, uh, this planet is is rich in a mineral called Taridium, uh, which an antagonistic race called the Scarge, 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 something like that, have uh, have begun mining on 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 the world. They've also enslaved the peaceful indigenous race, the Nali, and uh, you will come across Nali slaves in your adventure. And while um, like I did, you're free to kill them. <laughs> they will not attack you, and given time, will even attempt to help you by uh, revealing sequence or other secrets or, or, or otherwise guiding you on your quest. Eventually, though, you make your way through the mine and some other alien facilities, another down human vessel, and into some old Nali temples that have been taken over by the Scarge. Uh, from there, you enter uh, the castle being used as the main Scarge base on the world, which we find out is named Napali. Uh, at the culmination of the game, you're transported aboard the Scarge mothership, uh, likely the thing that shot down the Vortex Rikers to begin with. You face off with the Scarge Queen, destroy the mothership, and escape into space in a lonely escape pod to float for the rest of what is likely a short life. I kind of feel like they took a, they took the ending out of Space Quest 2 <laughs> or, uh, or Alien, probably Alien, to be fair. Um, of course... Even at its inception, you know, this is the whole single-player experience, but at its inception, Unreal did have a, a fairly complete, at least hopefully complete, multiplayer component, which had four modes. Uh, three of them were fairly standard Doom-inspired affairs, Deathmatch, Team Deathmatch, King of the Hill. Uh, the other one was called Darkmatch. Uh, it was introduced in the game's expansion, Return to Nepali. Uh, Darkmatch is basically a standard Deathmatch game, except all the maps are pretty much unlit. But uh, each player is equipped with a searchlight, allowing for limited visibility. Of course, you know, there's so much more I, I could say about the gameplay in Unreal, but I think that gives us a, a bit of an idea about how things are. You know, I can't remember if, uh, you know, the rocket jump is obviously a huge thing in Unreal. I can't remember if that, that came out in this uh, original game or if that started in Unreal Tournament. But, you know, if you've played Unreal, it's a thing. <laughs> and if you've played an Unreal Engine game, you know, you sort of know what we're, what we're talking about here. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for...
Okay, tech focus time. So Unreal really was uh, a killer of a game when it came out in 1998. I remember this time quite well. I was graduating from high school, and I'm fairly certain that I had a Pentium 200 with 16 megs of RAM right around this time, and that was pretty near the minimum specs to run this game. So to get Unreal going, you needed at least a Pentium processor, I believe a, at least a 166 megahertz. You also needed at least 16 megs of RAM. Edo RAM was the flavor of the day, uh, if I remember right. Edo RAM, or Extended Data Out RAM, was a type of, uh, of RAM optimized for use with uh, the fast at the time uh, Pentium CPUs. Uh, the main advantage of Edo RAM over its predecessor, which was known as FPM or Fast Page Mode RAM, uh, was uh, being able to store the result of a previous memory operation while it began a new operation. So basically it could sort of parallelize a little bit, have some overlap between the ending one operation and starting another operation. Uh, this allowed for some degree of memory pipelining. So you could take sort of the output of one thing, feed it into the input of the next thing. And, uh, you know, that allowed for, like I said, for some overlapping memory operations. It led to some performance improvement over, over FPM RAM. Um, and, you know, that was sort of, it sounded real cool. I don't know if it really gave that much performance, but you know, it was a generational shift in uh, in types of RAM. And you know, it's sort of funny. I find I can definitely speak to some of this Pentium technology a little more off the top of my head than uh, previous generations. My Pentium, this 200 megahertz uh, machine, was the first computer my family actually bought at a store, and uh, I did a good amount of research on it. Uh, we held on to that Pentium 200 for many years. In fact. It was only replaced partially by a Pentium 3 laptop that I got when I started my undergrad, which must have been like 2002 or something. And uh, it was eventually fully replaced as the main family workhorse machine by a Pentium 4. So we skipped, you know, Pentium Pro, Pentium 2, mostly the Pentium 3. And um, even after that, I kept it around as a file backup machine and a Win 98 gaming rig once we were pretty deep into the windows xp uh universe if you will so since we're deep into the cd-rom time frame here you did need at least a single speed cd-rom to play the game and uh, your machine had to be running at least windows 95 with at least directx 6 if you cared uh to run directx uh since this was also a full 3d game the other graphics apis were also supported uh those are 3dfx glide and OpenGL. Uh, from a resolution perspective, the game ran natively in SVGA at either 640 by 480 or 1024 by 768 at either a color depth of 16 or 24 bits. So that's, I believe, 65,000 or 16 million colors. Um, really, though, to get any decent amount of performance out of this game, all those specs I just talked about are basically useless. Uh, you would have needed something closer to probably a Pentium Pro, you know, with MMX. We'll talk about that a bit more in a bit. Uh, probably 266 megahertz and preferably with a dedicated 3D accelerator like a Voodoo or a Voodoo 2. Um, the software render in the game was quite good. It was it was really good as software renderers go, but taking that load off the processor was was way better to, to get some good frame rates out of Unreal. So before we end off with music like we usually do, I probably do 
need to say that this is the point in the show where I generally discuss the game engine as well. And of course, the Unreal Engine is a powerhouse in the industry with Unreal Engine 4 being the current iteration of uh, of that stuff. Uh, I'll be speaking about the engine a lot more in the dev story, so I'll leave it here to simply say that Unreal was the launch and showcase game for the first release of the Unreal 3D engine. Uh, it was designed out of the gate to be a multi-generational engine that could be evolved as technology evolved. More to come on that in uh, a couple of minutes. So music and sound-wise, as I just teased, uh, the game supported, obviously, anything that Windows supported uh, musically. There were quite a few contributors to the game's soundtrack. Uh, the main composers were Epic Games staff Alexander Brandon and Michael Vandenbos. Uh, other tracks were, were contributed by Andrew Sega, known in the demo scene as Necros. I believe we've chatted about him a couple of times. And uh, Dan Gardapay, another demo scener who had also worked with Brandon uh, before the game definitely has a late 90s electronica vibe to it uh, the soundtrack is at least in my mind dark unnerving and uh and quite moody uh it, it certainly <laughs> added quite a lot of atmosphere to the game and frankly made a little made me jump a little higher uh when i got jump scared uh the game soundtrack given that uh i just referenced the demo scene was uh was actually tracker music so it wasn't uh cd audio and I think because of that, it could uh, it could change dynamically. Um, the game soundtrack was so well regarded, in fact, that it actually received a commercial CD release, and and this one is definitely going into my regular rotation. Okay, time for everyone's favorite bit, the development story. So, Unreal is one of the most popular game series to come out of a company that is still massively relevant today, Epic Games. It's even a company that is massively relevant today that everyone doesn't hate, which is uh, sort of a bit of an accomplishment. Sorry, EA. Uh, Epic Games, or perhaps more familiarly, more familiarly to us, Epic Mega Games, was founded by one man, Mr. Tim Sweeney. So Sweeney was born in 1970 in Potomac, Maryland, not too far outside of Washington, D.C. Uh, even at a young age, he showed some technical aptitude, uh, taking things apart to see how they worked, and surprisingly, being able to put them back together again. Um, he also took an interest in the burgeoning world of arcade games that were coming into their own in uh, in the 70s. He understood that these games were, were programmed by people and... Uh, you know, much like uh, people built the mechanical devices he liked studying and building, you know, those mechanical devices were built and designed, and these games were also built and designed, just in a slightly different way. Uh, by the early 80s, one of Sweeney's two older brothers had moved to California and founded uh, a startup, and uh, the then 11-year-old was visiting his brother's new digs and came across a treasure, uh, a, a bunch of new IBM PCs that had recently come to the market. Uh, Sweeney was immediately interested in these machines. 
Uh, he had a Commodore 64, and then he certainly fiddled with, with programming on that platform. However, the PC and BASIC were so much more intuitive to him uh, that he spent the entire week-long visit just diving into BASIC programming and solidifying his interest in programming as a, a sort of a more focused hobby. Uh, when he got home, his family soon purchased an Apple II, and... Well, he didn't really describe himself as a, a hardcore gamer. He was more of an enthusiast. Uh, he set out to create a sequel to his favorite Atari 2600 game, Adventure. Over the next few years, all of his free time, uh, an estimated you know 10,000 hours, uh, were dedicated to teaching himself programming. Uh, he'd continue this effort through high school, producing games for himself, all while attending school and mowing lawns for money in wealthy Potomac. Now, despite his keen interest and considerable skill in programming, um, he rolled back to his initial interest and attended the University of Maryland studying mechanical engineering, uh, likely as a gift for getting into university. His father gave him his very own IBM AT, and uh, during his time in, uh, in undergrad, he started a computer consulting company out of his parents' house named Potomac Computer Systems. Now, it was a little bit challenging because he was living um, in in residence and dorm or whatever on campus at, uh, at the University of Maryland, and his computer actually lived back at his parents' house. So he'd sort of shuttle back and forth on weekends and, and try and do some work and on uh, Potomac Computer Systems stuff. And, uh, you know, he basically offered general technical help to the local community, things like that. However, due to his studies, the commuting stuff and bad timing or some other reason, you know, PCS never really gained a strong foothold and, and Sweeney sort of shelved the ideas like, ah, this isn't really the thing for me right now. Um, this consulting company, though, uh, this this idea was replaced by by another one. Uh, you know, as we've seen, he'd been messing around with game programming uh, for a few years and, uh, you know, surely he could come up with a game idea that people would enjoy playing, right? Yeah, sure he could. I mean, he'd been messing around making games for himself, basically, for uh, for years. Um, however, the first thing he felt he needed wasn't a game idea, wasn't, uh, you know, some graphics or, or anything like that. What he needed was a Pascal-based scripting language and an editor that he could use to more quickly develop the game. Um, he started building his his custom Pascal game editor and soon realized that even just this this text editor that he was basically creating could itself be converted into a game. And with that, Potomac Computer Systems' first commercial game, ZZT, was born, or ZZT if you're Canadian or British or whatever. Um, ZZT was a text-based action-adventure dungeon crawler in which you had to collect four keys to gain access to the castle in the town of ZZT. Your character was represented by an ASCII happy face, which you can type yourself in Windows right now by hitting Alt-1 in a text box. Um, this happy face would wander uh, the town and its associated dungeons, shooting enemies provided you had ammo and finding those keys. Uh, guess what? Sweeney just thought this would be another side project that wouldn't really go anywhere, and he was wrong. ZZT was very well received. Uh, he initially spread it around his friends for some unofficial testing and eventually released it for sale in October of 1991. Uh, the game was fun, addictive, and also very easy to mod 
thanks to Sweeney's uh, Pascal-based scripting language that he created called ZZT OOP or ZZT ZZ Top <laughs> ZZ Toop, I guess there's two O's. Uh, on the advice of Scott Miller of Apogee, he sort of reached out and said, eh, you know, how do I sell this thing that I have? And uh, Scott Miller basically said, you know, you should sort of go that shareware route. So the game is sold via BBSs and direct mail. It ended up selling pretty well, uh, you know, for for an initial effort out of uh, out of his dorm room. Uh, it sold a very steady kind of three to four copies a day. Orders were fulfilled by Tim's father, Paul Sweeney, out of their home. And in fact, that process never changed through the entire history of Potomac Computer Systems and the rest of the stuff that we're about to see. The last copy of ZZT was fulfilled by Mr. Paul Sweeney in November of 2013. <laughs> That's pretty impressive. That's a good run for that game and, uh, and a good, <laughs> good job for, uh, for Tim's dad. So Sweeney was a game developer now. Potomac Computer Systems was not a very compelling name for an exciting and dynamic game company. So he did come up with a new name. Epic Mega Games was born. Uh, Sweeney, rightly or wrongly, hoped the words Epic and Mega would make uh, his one-man operation, I guess two men with uh, his dad doing order fulfillment, uh, would make it seem like a much larger company than it actually was, give them a little bit of, uh, oh, what's the word, legitimacy. Uh, Sweeney also realized he probably needed a partner who was a little bit more in tune with, um, the business side of things. And this led him to meet Mark rain who, uh, had recently left a position as probationary president of id software and was now living in my current hometown of Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Now rain is credited by Sweeney with really growing the company from a one man show to a powerhouse, putting out games like Jill of the jungle, which Alima, I will be covering soon enough. Don't you worry. Uh, Zargon jazz, Jackrabbit, and publishing even more well-known games like Tyrion and one must fall 2097 and a whole whack more than that. Uh, thoughts around a new game kind of you know through this this development and and of the company and all of that you know through this process uh thoughts about a new game that was inspired by john carmack's incredible and groundbreaking work on doom and more recently quake uh began around 1995 so at this point epic was a, a pretty good company i think there were something like 20 people they were riding high on sales of their most popular shareware title to date epic pinball uh, and money was available to, to really dive deep into this crazy 3D world that Carmack had, uh, had brought us into with, uh, with Quake. To say that Doom and Quake were the inspiration for Epic's next project, well, you know, true, definitely from a technological perspective, is not also the whole story. Really, the first inkling of the game engine that they were working on rolling um, was an outdoor terrain system that was inspired not by id but by bullfrog's magic carpet uh they continued on a bit so they sort of created the, this rolling generated you know hill landscape thing and that was sort of the basis for for their engine they kept moving in this direction they built out some polygonal creatures like a dragon some logic for creating buildings uh this work was originally done by james schmalve who would be credited as a co-designer on uh, on Unreal. However, 
by the time some of this proof of concept work was done, Tim Sweeney took notice of this 3D thing that was uh, <laughs> that that was taking shape. Um, he did like the beginnings of this, and uh, obviously, you know, being who he was, he didn't think hard coding everything was was likely the way to go. It was, uh, you know, building out this dragon, building out this terrain generator, building out these buildings was was a lot of work. So, much as he did with ZZT, he started to create tools and make building out in-game assets easier. This allowed Schmalf to step back from programming, let Sweeney do what he did best, and uh, you know Sweeney's tools made creating buildings and other interiors so much easier that the initial idea of their 3D game being a rolling magic carpet-like outdoor game was actually mostly abandoned, and for quite a while, that all that outdoor terrain generation code was actually completely removed from uh, from the game. And the game engine, uh, in favor of more of an indoor kind of cavern experience, uh, the team went this way simply because it would be much easier to add the level of detail, the level of fidelity, and uh, and all that that they wanted uh, with with more of an indoor game. As I've ex- explained in, in the Descent episode, in the Doom episodes, and and other sort of three D FPS uh, focused shows, designing a three D game world brings a lot of uh, tricks with it. And one of them is using things like walls and doors to hide the rest of the world so that it doesn't need to be rendered. That creates, you know, a lot more performance, a lot more speed. And, uh, you know, in an expansive outdoor space, uh, all that stuff does need to be rendered. You don't have that many walls and doors and things that are blocking your view, meaning your outdoor world can't really be as rich as your indoor world because you got to show it all at the same time. Um, Also, on top of technical reasons, Sweeney's authoring tools were making the indoor environments come together very, very well and very, very quickly. Uh, before all this change, though, you know, when we were still back in the uh, the rolling world, the dragon and all this stuff, there was another technological innovation uh, that the team would get exposed to. Intel, yep, yep Intel, the, the CPU people were coming out with an update to the Pentium line of processors, uh, which they were calling the Pentium Pro, which would include Intel's new multimedia extensions. It has a couple of other names, but that's the one I like, or uh, also known as MMX technology. Now, they had caught wind of Epic's new game that would rival Quake, and uh, they brought the team in and showed them what they'd been working on for CPUs for the past six years. So without getting into too much detail... I'm just get into a little bit of detail, like I do. Um, MMX, Multimedia Extensions, defined a set of eight 64-bit memory registers that uh, were reserved for graphical processing and had some associated you know, graphical processing routines associated with them. Uh, now, remember, I, I talked about this, I don't know, way back at the beginning of the show. Uh, registers, memory registers, are... Very small, you said 64-bit uh, memory spaces that sit immensely close, almost I believe they even sit on uh, the CPU, meaning that they are very, very, very fast because they are local to the, the processor. MMX allowed some graphics processing to be offloaded from the main CPU architecture into this little special register set, um, which allowed for higher performance. Um you know, as standalone 3D accelerators became more common, this wasn't as useful, but around this time. You know, 3D accelerators were, we'll, we'll talk about it in a minute, but, you know, a lot of people didn't have that sort of hardware. Uh, also, 
you know, at the time there wasn't really a standard for 3D uh, DirectX, even in DirectX, you know, three, four, five, six was really still sort of baking. Uh, it wasn't, it wasn't the standard it is today. Uh, OpenGL and Glide were, were other options, but you had to implement those custom uh, libraries. So the fact that Intel promised MMX instructions on all new processors coming out really did motivate the team as they felt they could write a software renderer that took advantage of these things and worked well on every Intel processor that people would potentially play their game on. Um, you know, Sweeney was, he, he, he drank the, the Kool-Aid. He was taken with the extra capabilities that MMX offered. And, um, you know, after signing a, a huge pile of non-disclosure agreements, they started work on integrating the MMX instruction set into his now coalescing game engine. Uh, they did this without any way of actually testing their work as uh, MMX chips were not yet available in any way, not because they didn't have access to them, but because they literally didn't exist yet. Um, eventually, though, the team received an emulator from Intel that let a, a regular Pentium run MMX instructions, sort of in emulation mode. Uh, it ran dog slow, but uh, the emulator proved that Sweeney's code was correct, running without error the first time they tested it. And I don't think many developers can, uh, can make that claim to fame. So over the next few years, the team would work out all the game's levels, dropping quite a few of their original ideas, moving the game mostly indoors, dropping the dragon, dropping a bunch of weapon types, and also refining the Unreal Engine that was powering the game. Uh, taking advantage of MMX did help the team uh, to create a, an incredibly capable, incredibly high-performing software renderer, which is damned important and damned impressive. But, uh, you know, as time progressed... 3D cards did become more mainstream. So before release, the engine did add in 3DFX Glide support and OpenGL uh, support. And finally, it did also have Direct3D support, but out of the gate, that Direct3D support was pretty slow and pretty buggy and had many uh, advanced features disabled, including this concept of um, detail texturing, which is sort of, um, it adds more complex texture samples to objects as you approach them closer. So if you're standing far away, things will have sort of like lower detail textures. As you get very close to them, those uh, textures get upgraded to higher res textures. So when you're standing right up next to something, it looks way better than it does when you're standing far away. So after four years of development, which seems like a long time, but really is not, Unreal shipped in May of 1998. Now, not only did the game ship, but it also came with a map editor uh, called Unreal Ed and the ability to mod the game via Unreal Script, the Unreal Engine's proprietary scripting language. You kind of see a, a bit of a pattern here with uh, how Sweeney goes about doing things. So with all this, Unreal made it to second place in the software sales chart at launch. It trailed slightly behind StarCraft. 1998 was a very big year for, uh, for PC games. Uh, suffice it to say... It was an amazing seller with critics saying that its atmosphere and unique game elements uh, brought life to what they were saying was starting to sort of become a bit of a tire genre. Now, I know the show is already going long. Uh, we're already in an hour. Uh, so I will speak quickly about the things that came after Unreal. Of course, there was the expansion to Unreal called The Return to Nepali, 
where your escape pod is picked up and you're tasked to return to the planet, hooray, uh, to locate a, a down ship and retrieve weapons research. You quickly do, but your employers are not as trustworthy as you'd like and things go south. Uh, the expansion adds in some additional weapons and generally adds some more meat to uh, the single player game. One year later though, Unreal Tournament launched. Uh, this was initially planned as an expansion to Unreal, a second expansion. Um, tournament featured arena-style combat with multiplayer as a focus, and as we all likely know, this this sort of took off. So you see, the multiplayer uh, in the original Unreal actually did, as much as I say it was there, it did leave something to be desired. The network code wasn't super great, and so a major focus of Unreal Tournament was approving this, improving this code and uh, the associated gameplay experience. So all told, about 16 people worked on Unreal Tournament. Most of them had worked on uh, the first Unreal. And, uh, you know, realizing how much of this, exp- how much work went into this expansion, uh, it was decided by Mark Rain that the game would actually be released as a standalone product. Uh, the team was hesitant but eventually agreed. And I understand their hesitation because around now, sort of 1998, 1999, you know, the internet was, was there. It was a thing. Doom multiplayer was a thing, but, you know, trying to sell a game that was basically entirely focused on connected multiplayer, online multiplayer was a bit of a big risk. It was, it was a big ask because people didn't necessarily have, you know, people didn't have all his on internet connections. A lot of people were still on dial up and, and you know, it, it, it was a risk selling a game that didn't really have a very strong single player. Like there was single player in unreal tournament, but it was really just, you know, running bots and, and pretending to play online. So, uh, despite the hesitancy of the team, they agreed and the game sold like gangbusters. And, and I do remember when unreal tournament came out, uh, quake three arena, had released and this was epic's answer to it uh you know unreal and quake i haven't done a quake episode yet but i will at some point but you know they have this this interesting rivalry uh both on the development and the technology side and also on the community side now you know i recall a time you know 99 2000 uh early 2000s where you were either a quake player or you were an unreal player, but you were not really both. It's like Elvis and the Beatles. It's a good, a good metaphor from, uh, from Pulp Fiction. You, you may listen to both, but you always prefer one over the other. So I'm an, uh, I'm an unreal guy and I'm a Beatles guy. <laughs> I would, uh, I would say, uh, unreal tournament would spawn four sequels and three additional revisions of the unreal engine. Unreal tournament, 2003 and 2004 ran on unreal engine two unreal tournament three came in 2007 and uh and that ran on unreal engine 3 and finally a rebooted unreal tournament is forthcoming as the flagship project on the latest unreal engine 4 and it does not have a release date as of yet as far as i can tell uh there was also a direct sequel to the first game unreal 2 the awakening which released in 2003 it was actually developed not by epic but by legend entertainment uh, it released to moderate reviews, but uh, I think at this point, Unreal had sort of found its place in the world of uh, of arena-based multiplayer. Uh, as great as the campaign in the first game was, people wanted multiplayer-focused action way more.
where can we get Unreal today? Well, pretty much all, I believe in fact all, not pretty much, but every single one of the Unreal games that I just discussed can be purchased on both Steam and GOG for around 10 bucks each. Uh, the games run, but I had to fart around quite a bit with Unreal Gold to get it to get it to capture but if you're playing it for fun it just works so no problems there whichever platform you like go buy the games they work great say whatever is in your mind freely our conversation will be kept in strict confidence okay because we haven't read enough emails on this show yet we have a few more first up we have a follow-up again from brian demodulated he really is uh is prolific in this episode with uh, with two entries. He writes, Hi, Joe, and Blockers. I wasn't a huge fan of Unreal, but the engine astonished me. It seems lame in retrospect, but my most vivid recollection of this game is the animated textures mapped to polygons. If I'm not mistaken, this was the first instance where you could see flickering lights on panels in your spaceship. I also fondly remember my first steps outdoors after the prologue. It was incredible actually being outside in a huge open desert in a first-person shooter and seeing your huge ship crashed into the sand with a three-mile skid mark indentation, uh, which gave a hum- humbling sense of scale. Rocket Jumpily yours, Brian. Thank you, Brian. And uh, yeah, you know, you are uh, you are right. That The, the lighting in the game, they're actually, I, I was, I, when I was doing the dev story, I, I pulled up uh, an interview that uh, some of the dev team had done with uh, next generation magazine, which is not a magazine that I had uh, read at all. They were trying to talking about how it was trying to get onto the Nintendo 64. And one of the reasons they were trying not to push it onto the Nintendo 64 was that they'd have to really dumb down the, uh, the lighting in the game. There was a lot of dynamic lighting in this game. And uh, I think they did really kind of go out of their way to, to push that to the next level. I think they said that the light, the lighting, the lighting maps were mapped to eight by eight pixels. So they really, really could, especially at 1024 by 768, they really could create these, these gradations of light. So you didn't see these like bands of, Oh, this is darker light and this is lighter light. And you, you didn't see that there was a smooth kind of progression of, of, of light gradient and stuff like that. So yeah, lighting super important in this game and yeah, sort of the scale of uh, of the outdoor scenes when you first walk out you know i'm probably going to talk about that myself but yeah it's sort of like you pop out and you literally do pop out you sort of like kick (laughs) kick a hatch open and you walk outside and you're like oh well this is where i am now okay that's pretty impressive so thanks again brian keep emailing and uh let's move on to the next email which is from james and james writes hello joe and fellow blockers I first bought the game around the year 2000 from a secondhand type shop where they mostly sold secondhand music CDs as well as games and loaded it onto my AMD K6 200MHz PC, which had a 2MB Cirrus Logic VGA card. Even though it was just software rendering, the game was fantastic. From waking up in your prison bed to stepping outside in an unknown, as far as your character was concerned, landscape. As you went on in the game, the landscape became more wondrous and the levels themselves were mind-numbingly huge. Everything felt so natural. For those of you younger listeners, we gamers went on from Quake 2, a game with levels and enemies that started small and simple but progressed to larger levels and deadlier enemies, to Unreal, 
with its massive outdoor areas and differing enemy types, the first encounter was from a brute that had twin rocket launchers. The most memorable enemy was the Scarge, a warrior-like race who were fast and took opportunity to dodge your attacks, something that even modern games fail to replicate. Other than the free, lo- the free Unreal Editor, the other additional feature was a bot match. This was a single player pitted against AI, uh, an AI-controlled bot that eventually led to Unreal Tournament. UT was fun to play, but I did miss the single-player experience from the first game. Much later, I got to play Unreal's expansion, Return to Nepali, where uh, the protagonist returns and suddenly has a voice. I don't remember much about it, but I know I didn't dislike it. Unreal 2, The Awakening, on the other hand, I had no love for. I think they put in too much of the other universe that it just didn't feel the same as playing Unreal. Sure, Unreal did give you an idea that there was more to its universe than a prisoner stuck on a planet by the logs you pick up on your journey, and yes, it did make you wonder about that, but again, too much of an unknown universe in such a short space of time killed it. Anyways, I've enjoyed watching your YouTube research, and I hope if you got to see any of my long play, it helped further in your research. Thanks. James. Well, thank you, James. And yes, I did uh, poke around with some of your research as well. And uh, and uh, yeah, it was a, a lot of fun. Thanks for, uh, for checking out the YouTube channel uh, and watching me get scared of the stupid brutes jumping out of nowhere. Uh, finally, we have an email from uh, Baruski2117. And he writes, Hi, Joe. I still remember starting the game in the wrecked prison ship, waiting for some monster or alien to attack me at any moment. Every time I entered a room or opened a door, the suspense was intense. Any moment now, nope, not yet, and ah, the bridge. Walk past the dead pilot and have him give you that last gasp and slump. I nearly crapped myself. Yep, there were no monsters on that ship, so I worked myself up that whole time to almost have a heart attack when the pilot groans and dies. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Bruski. Uh And, you know, I think I sort of mentioned it a little bit myself. It is sort of novel that, you know, you're in a first-person shooter where the whole point of the game is to shoot things and kill things. And for a good chunk of the beginning of the game, you have no capacity to do that. And it really does create this sense of helplessness and this sense of like, oh, God, what am I doing? What's going on? When am I going to get a gun? Oh, am I never going to get a gun? How am I going to fight? You can't even punch anything. And frankly, I think if you tried to punch a brute, you just would die. (laughs) So, yeah, really, really great. All right. So time for the big, uh, <laughs> the big verdict doesn't real hold up today. Well, hell yes. I, I, I mean, it makes me motion sick, but that's my problem. But holy hell, I had no idea this game was so atmospheric. I have never played. I started playing unreal with, uh, with unreal tournament 2004. So I never played this original game and you know, you, you think you're going to be crawling through this broken ship forever. All right, okay, everything takes place on this stupid ship. And suddenly, boom, you're out in a huge outdoor space and then you're back into mines and, and you know, through all this other stuff and, and a lot of these outdoor areas and indoor areas and it's just, it's just nuts. And until you get your hands on some decent guns, all the enemies are a challenge. This isn't Doom or Quake where you're this powerhouse fighter with, you know, from minute one, you're just like the ultra supermarine you need to run, you need to dodge, you need to hide. And and even the simplest enemies, these the, the brutes, the first guys you run into, 
They can take a lot of hits from your crappy weapons, and and th- their weapons are way stronger than yours. They two rocket launchers versus your your pop gun. If you go and watch my two YouTube videos, like we just talked about, uh, I if you go to the start of the second video about like three minutes in, I get freaking jump scared like bad, <laughs> and you know that's not a usual thing uh, for me. You know, and, and to me, that means that that. You know Tim Sweeney and 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 the guys at uh, at uh, you know company un, at uh, Epic really did something right. They did something very very right with uh, with Unreal. Now, from a technology perspective, Unreal and its follow-on titles are immeasurably important to uh, you know the engine that this game spawned is one of the most important, most prolific engines in use um, in the game industry today. Even Epic itself is continuing to ride high with the immeasurable success of, uh, of Fortnite that, that, you know, your kids or any of you who are listening, who are under 20 know very, very well. So it's, it's, it's frankly incredible that a game, you know, a company that started out, you know, in, in the late eighties and the early nineties is still riding, uh, you know, at the, at the top of the world with, with some innovative games. You know, I said, I sort of joked about the fact that they're a, a popular company that not everyone hates, but you know, you go and look at, at companies like like EA and like you know Bullfrog and then Lion's Head or whatever with with Peter Molyneux and the trouble that Peter Molyneux got into and and all that. You know, it, companies do sort of change and and you know celebrity devs and stuff do sort of change and and I don't know sometimes things go to their head or their business business practices change and. You know, I haven't done that much research into Epic these days to know if they're still good or bad, but they are still doing very, very well, and they are still a very popular company with what I think to, is is a fairly good reputation. So, you know, all that aside, if if you are a first-person shooter player of of any stripe, if you if you played Doom, if you play Halo, if you're playing Destiny, if you're playing anything that's an FPS. You will. You, you need to go and play Unreal, and that is probably and that is to to understand where why the genre is where it is today. You know, while Wolfenstein 3D defined the genre, Doom popularized the genre. Unreal, I think, really did uh, define the tropes, the controls, the gameplay loop of a modern uh, 3D first-person shooter. It defined the scope, the scale of a modern 3d first person shooter. It really did. You know, if you go and look at that original unreal, all the pieces are finally there for what shooters are today. And, and I think that is very, very important. Hi, I'm the space quest historian, but I listen to other podcasts as well. And you should all listen to Joe Mastriani doing the Upper Memory Block podcast because it is utterly fantastic and Joe is a very nice guy. So there, do it. Do it for Xenon. Do it for uh, whatever you find uh, really important. Do it! Well, thank you, trolls. So that is that. Wow, I, I figured... This would be uh, lengthy, but that's what happens when we have a big series to cover, and uh, you guys also have a lot of stuff to say. So, uh, for the month of October, I'm planning on holding our next Hangout. Uh, I'll also be traveling quite a bit, so that Hangout uh, may well be the show you get for for the month. Uh, For our next game, though, I'm hoping to venture somewhere I have 
never gone before uh, and hit up a sports game. And the sports game that I will hit is Access Software and eventually Microsoft's uh, Lynx series. So as always, you can send email or audio comments to podcast at umbcast.com. Thanks to Rick Moyer for his great audio work. You can find his stuff over at moyermultimedia.com. Don't forget, if you enjoy the show, you can support me over at patreon.com slash umbcast. Contributions have been uh, flat for a little while, which is totally cool, totally understandable. Thank you for everyone who has contributed through good times and uh, lean times of uh, the young life of the UM baby, who, as I said, is now officially two years old. Uh, Check out the show notes at umbcast.com. Join the Facebook group over at facebook.com slash groups slash umbcast. Uh, follow the show on Twitter, twitter.com slash UMB show. That's also sort of become my primary Twitter account. I don't post much on the personal one. Um, you can also find the show on YouTube over at youtube.com slash UMB cast. Uh, I put up some unreal videos. I am currently slowly working my way through the original fallout. I think we're about eight episodes in and, uh, I don't know how far through the game I frankly am, but, uh, I'm having fun doing it. Subscribe to the show on iTunes, stream us live at Stitcher radio, And that is that, and we will see you next time for links here in the upper memory block. Battle control terminated. You've been listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast with Joe Mastroianni. For more information on the podcast, visit umbcast.com. That's umbcast.com. Write to Joe today at podcast at umbcast.com. That's podcast at umbcast.com. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity or do you die here? Joe.